What is up, everybody? Welcome back to the Run Your Mouth podcast. This is an honor. We've got Gene Epstein with us here today. Um, the You call yourself the godfather of the New York City libertarian <laughs> movement. <laughs> that's, what, that's what Dave Smith calls me. But, uh, but although, I, of course, I've, I've been willing to adopt that mantle uh, uh, that, uh, that Dave has bestowed on me. God, yes. I think it's a noteworthy title, and yeah. I greatly appreciate you uh, coming and doing my podcast with me. Thank you, Gene. Well, it's an honor to be with you, Rob. Uh, you know, you are uh, the undervalued, uh, but uh, in my opinion, uh, the great asset of uh, the part of the problem a duo, two Jewish guys running their mouths together. And uh, you often let Dave do most of the talking, but your contributions are always just incredibly incisive. So it's an honor to be, uh, be with you. I appreciate that. And I want to let you know what's really nice about the Run Your Mouth podcast yeah, is yeah. Um, you're free to get things wrong while you're here. I know every other podcast you do, they really hold you to a standard and you've got to be academic. If you're here, that it's called run your mouth for a reason. We frequently go off on things we don't know much about. So, you know, feel free to relax and get things wrong. I've never been afraid to be wrong, Rob, after 76 years of often being wrong. Uh, so uh, I have no problem with that uh, at all. And, Excellent. Uh, and I'm looking forward to it, to exploit it to the full. <laughs> My ability First, to be wrong. Yeah, go ahead. Yes. First topic I really want to get into is you sent me an email earlier in the week, and I always appreciate your email blast and the little things that you highlight. Oh, okay. uh, and the most recent one you put out was about the Barrington Declaration. Great Barrington Declaration. The yeah. Great Barrington Declaration. That's the name of the town is Great Barrington, Rob. Yeah, that, that's why they're called Great Barrington. And apparently oh. I saw the Barrington people disowned the declaration. They were a little upset by this. Did you see that? The Barrington people? Who the hell are the Barrington people? Again, the town is called Great Barrington, so I know what you're referring to. You're already wrong, Rob, <laughs> and you're not afraid to be. What the heck are you talking about? Go ahead, yes. Okay, so anyway, Clarify, clarify, Rob. All right, so you put out an email about the Great Barrington Declaration, yeah, yeah. which was a um, basically talking about how the lockdowns didn't work. Um, I believe the article somewhat explores herd immunity. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I'm very interested in, I guess, to what extent or – to what extent they did not work. I just really want to talk about the lockdowns a little bit. Oh, okay. Um, and so to start out, just to put aside whether or not government should or shouldn't, like let's just totally put that aside. You and I, we're in agreement. I don't think the government has any right to tell us that we need to close our businesses or stay in our homes. Let's just put that aside. With that being said, you know, let's just mm. pretend we live in a reality where government is allowed to make these decisions and can, can impose on people. Mm. So let's just start out with looking at the evidence of whether or not the strategy itself did or did not work. Um, and so I'd love to hear a little bit from you, a kind of sure. what your takeaway was in terms of the utility of the lockdowns. Well, a uh, couple of things, Rob, just to begin with, is that uh, while uh, you know, I, I left uh, uh, Barron's uh, in, in January of 2018, and uh, I've been running my solo forum. And of course, uh, you've been there and you honored us at one point with being uh, our warm-up act. And uh, you've been a frequent attendee. And so I thought I'd be doing a lot of things, uh, writing articles about and books, in fact, book-length essays and such. But obviously, this thing has just caught me up. And uh, so I spend most of my days uh, studying it, writing about it. And I have a special line to a great epidemiologist named Knut Witkowski. So uh, I do know a lot about it. Uh, and also, I want to frame it uh, somewhat differently, frame your question somewhat differently. Um, as provisionally a, uh, a a night watchman state guy, not 
an, an ANCAP. I, I'm somebody who has vast respect for ANCAPs or anarcho-capitalists, but uh, I, I have a little bit of a issue with it. And uh, I always say, well, let's let's just re- roll back the state to the original concept of the founding fathers, the night watchman state that basically protects our rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, uh, and uh, and is answerable to us. You know, that's why governments are instituted among men. Uh, given that viewpoint, uh, I don't completely reject the idea that government can intervene and impose quarantines, lockdowns, and so on, in order to protect life. You know, the, the argument clearly is that uh, we are protecting life by imposing a lockdown. But obviously, obviously, um, those of us who are libertarians and those of us who have any respect for freedom, which I hope is many more than people than just libertarians, should understand that as with all such matters, there is a very heavy burden of proof on those who would say that uh, that lockdowns are going to save lives. And uh, so that's my framework. Uh, and, uh, and once you say uh, the burden of proof is on the lockdowners, then it's easy enough to show that uh, it does more harm than good. And uh, I mean, there's a whole list of reasons for that. And one of them, of course, is that to begin with, it's very hard to prove that lockdowns actually have even flattened the curve. What does flattening the curve mean? Flattening the curve means you postpone the infections, you postpone the deaths, you postpone the hospitalizations. Flattening the curve at least accepts the grim reality that a, a virus can only be defeated through 50 to 60% immunity. 50, 50 to 60% immunity basically occurs because of natural herd immunity, because we already have uh, about 25% of the population that already has T cells and antibodies that can fight it. And then and then we have cross immunity. We already have people who have some infection. And then on top of that, then uh, another 25% get infected and we achieve herd immunity. But uh, that usually is what happens. You, it, we don't have any evidence that a vaccine has made any difference. But, but let's say that you would argue that a lockdown can at least deliver delay the infections. Uh, if you look at a book uh, like The Price of Panic, a book I recommend highly, which is very evidence-based, uh, it takes a look, a close look at the 50 states of the union, takes a close look at more than 50 countries worldwide, and looks at the curves, the curves of infections, the curves of deaths, uh, and you, you hit a peak and then you begin to decline. And then it asks, Tell us in each case at what point did government impose its lockdown, and and you would think that that which should mean that government imposes the lockdown about like ten days before you hit a peak, hit the peak, and then begin to decline. In other words, you know when the lockdown takes a while to take place. The truth, the truth is that it doesn't correlate. It's all over the map. It's a complete mess. You you can't possibly guess which country is which. From Japan to Sweden to the UK, and and of course we, the fact that we have the what's called federalism in the U.S. meaning federalism is kind of a misleading term. It basically means that that the states pretty much do what they want, and and Trump never interfered with what the states were doing. We've got Florida on the one hand, we've got South Dakota, so we find absolutely no connection whatsoever. So. The, the, the lockdowns seem to have done nothing, even in terms of their own goals. 
probably they did something even because because the data are such a mess and and empirically i guess we could think that they must have done something even though the doubts about it that i've introduced are well why would the lockdowns do nothing number one because a lockdown to begin with is a misnomer why is it a misnomer so let's just uh oh, let's God, take yes. let's take a quick pause so before we get into the okay. why it didn't work you usually let be... dave continue for a longer time than, <laughs> than, I, than i was can't you just treat me the way the way you treat dave <laughs> well go ahead go ahead go ahead rob i wanted to continue with some other insights but yeah we'll stop there what's your question Dave? Rob? no no i just want to uh make sure that i'm uh that i'm, I'm following here yeah, sure so, sure it's kind yeah, of a, like you've had trouble reading human action. You're you're, you're talking to an inc, you know an, an incarnation of Ludwig von Mises. So okay, let's go slowly, Rob. Go ahead. Yes. Excellent. Thank you, Gene. So to recap, it sounds like it's a it's a two step argument. One yeah. is burden of proof in order to pose a lockdown is on the people that want to create the lockdown. Well, one would think so. You know, you want to implore not just libertarians, but anybody's read the Declaration of Independence. Anybody's like an American, you know. You know, it's, you know, I'm beginning to weep now, Rob. Yeah, okay. You, as you said, that's the burden of proof is on them. And I would just think that everybody should understand that. But go ahead, Rob. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so that's step one. And then step two is saying, if you're looking at the data from the lockdowns, yeah. there's no correlation between the virus increasing, um, decreasing, increasing, and yeah. people having to be stuck in their homes. And so visually, the evidence of that is looking at any of the countries that did or didn't lock down, the charts are virtually the same. So you can't, you couldn't even tell me when the lockdown started. Yeah. So you can't possibly say that it worked. And, and, and not just not just across all countries, but uh, but, it's, but especially because the data, interesting, because we have a federation, you know, because the states all did different things at different times. Uh, so it's actually true also for the 50 states. So, so you can, you know, the point is, there's a tendency to just get, uh, to sort of microanalyze and compare Sweden with this country. And that that's, somewhat useful but the broad picture uh, i think is the best way to do it again play this play the game and say here are all the charts we we didn't label the countries you tell us when the lockdown started you you uh, charts having to do again with the trends in in uh, in deaths or anything you want to choose they peaked and then they began to decline. Uh, but but uh, although let me back up and say that I guess you know the difference between me and you and the way you formulated it is that I at least do grant in principle that if you do have a state and if the state is supposed to protect life, then then you could argue that that when it comes to an infectious disease, that that you are protecting my life if you if you prevent rob bernstein from leaving his house in principle that's true so that's why the, my point is that i'm playing the game of the lockdowners while insisting hopefully that they're not total totalitarians and they understand that as with all things empirical data and the real world is a very difficult thing to sort out so that we when in doubt don't lock down the default position is no government totalitarianism that's my point there as well so thank you very much for allowing me to elaborate on it rob go ahead yes okay so i i don't know if i'm going to formulate this question in the most accurate way but um i'm afraid rob continue yeah <laughs> And maybe this is a dumb question, but once we introduce, I guess, the idea that government has the power to, um, to, to have a lockdown, which 
I don't necessarily disagree with you on that. I, I think to me, it's kind of a, if people had free association for a town, they could decide, Hey, this is what we want to do for oh, our town well, and impose that on people. I think like they're on a, on a federal level, maybe we're looking at something a little bit different, well, but in this case, I think one of the things that really, and I, I have a joke about this in the end of your recap I'm going to do, and I think it's faulty logic, but they've somewhat presented that the lockdowns could work. And so therefore, since they could, it's something that we might as well should do. Well, now, that's which, again, that's my- which is very dumb. I, not You and I, we both agree that's very dumb. Well, but is there a possibility here that even though we can't prove that they are working, um, that there is some utility to them and just, you know, I guess, you know, scientists aren't slick enough to, to show the fact that they are helping or it's not, I guess, the way that we kind of monitor these things, it's not it's not easy to predict what would have happened if they didn't happen. So it's hard to prove that they're working. I guess my question is, is there a possibility that we haven't yet figured out how to prove that they're helping, but in fact, there actually is some utility to it? Well, the answer at the end of the day uh, has to be yes to your question. There is a possibility. Uh, my only point again is that is that uh, I think if I'm going to convey any lesson to you and to your listeners is that when it when you when it comes to dealing with empirical reality, uh, in the vast majority of cases, we we first have to set the ground rules and ask: uh, is there is there one side or the other to which we place the burden of proof? Uh, because of course I will then of course point out I guess anticipating where my argument is going clearly we know that inherently inherently to give government the power to tell Rob Bernstein or Gene Epstein that you can't leave your home that is clearly in direct violation of our individual rights so you have to have a very good overwhelmingly good reason uh, to uh, to deny me and or to deny you that right. Uh, so, but but if you want to insist and say that, is there a one out of a thousand chance or one out of a hundred chance that the lockdowns are achieving some good, then I have to say, well, look, between heaven and earth, anything is possible. As you said before we went on, is are human beings completely rational? Do we have reality completely figured out? No. That's why I insist that the burden of proof uh, framework is vital to the argument. Of course, I want to anticipate, I guess, briefly and say that it isn't just, of course, that uh, that we have no evidence that the lockdowns have done anything. It's that we have overwhelming evidence that the lockdowns have co- have killed more people than they have apparently saved. Excuse me, evidence. By evidence, I mean that that too is not absolutely decisive evidence, but it's very compelling evidence. So my point is that the oval, it's almost as though I, um, I could play a different game with you and say, assume a level playing field. The level playing field is that we don't know where to place the burden of proof. What the hell, you know, government, uh, you know, Cuomo and de Blasio and all the rest of them have a good, and, and Gavin Newsom, they have a lot of fun and they tell us we can't leave our homes while, of course, they're gallivanting to the gym and to parties and everything else. They're a bunch of hypocrites, but they're after all the elite. So what the hell, who cares? I would even argue, of course, that if it was a level playing field, uh, the lockdown argument collapses. The point is, I, I do, I, but, but by the way, I do agree that despite the fact that there's no way to prove that the lockdowns really made any difference, I would say that 
probably they made some difference. But I, but I was in the middle of, of elaborating on one point when, when you interrupted me with your excellent question, Rob. I was elaborating on the point that, that to begin with, a lockdown is a bit of a misnomer because you always have the quote-unquote essential workers having to go to work. We still have to deliver the food. We still have to have, have medical workers have, have, having to go to work. We still have to have to have the trains running. We still have a lot of people who are venturing out and, and breaking the lockdown. So that's one reason perhaps why lockdowns don't really work because in a sense, there's no such thing as a true lockdown because otherwise we'd all start. And then the second part of it is that ironically, on the other side, when people are forced to congregate inside more than they would normally do so, then, then they might tend to infect each other. And then if you connect the dots both ways, you know, you, the Bernstein family is home and, and, uh, and Rob Bernstein is an essential worker who's got to go out and do a stand-up uh, because the government has said that's essential, we've got to keep laughing. And so then you, you get infected when you do the stand-up. You come home and you infect all the family who's congregating together. So all I'm saying is that in a way, uh, part of the point about, uh, about addressing those who, those who support lockdown is to, is to tell them that what they're really proposing is a big goddamn mess anyway. There's no such thing as a true a quarantine lockdown. So uh, that's why perhaps lockdowns fail. But, but, but I'm saying I'm not even putting it on the other side of the ledger now. Uh, the, the big thing, of course, which I guess a lot of people don't care about when I sent around the Q&A from the Great Barrington Declaration, the UN estimates that an additional 130 million poor people will be at risk of starvation as a consequence of the economic collapse caused by the lockdowns. Estimates suggest that an additional 400,000 people will die from inadequate TB treatment, tuberculosis treatment, vaccination per campaigns in rich and poor countries that address diseases like diphtheria and polio have been suspended due to the lockdowns. Just, just the, 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 the people of, of the third world who live on the edge, who de have depended on the prosperity of the first world, are dying because of the lockdowns. That should just end the story if we have any compassion for, 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 for humanity in general. So uh, I guess I'll shut up now because maybe you want to ask. Um, I, I've jumped to the final conclusion, but but there's some interim steps as well in terms of talking about a lockdown and why it's essentially futile. But uh, did you have a question, Rob, or a comment? No. Um, firstly, all uh, really excellent insights, so I appreciate that. But I sure. do want to get into um, the why a little bit, which we already kind of – the why it didn't work, um, oh, and you've already given a couple reasons for that. Yeah. Well, 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 why? It made, I, I have to put a finer point on it. The point is, I do tend to think that uh, that despite the mess, despite because there's so much uh, that we can't figure out. By the way, I, I, sh I should now maybe modify even my own conclusion in this sense. Uh, one of the things that 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 you have to bear in mind is that is that it, in different states, you know, it's not just in countries, but in states. And by the way, when you talk about playing the game of of the uh, of the non-libertarians and saying are lockdowns possibly justified by the state, we do have a, a confederate a federation, and basically the lockdowns were left to the governors, basically to the governors, not not to the nation state. And Trump Trump never tried to interfere with that. I, I I don't know whether Biden will try to, but Trump basically recognized he could not interfere with what each state was doing. And as you know, DeSantis of Florida has been very very uh, against Biden. Uh, and large against lockdowns uh, over the last few months. Uh, South Dakota has been against lockdowns. So we have a lot of good examples across 
uh, states. But what happened? But one of the one of the wild cards in analyzing the empirical data is that you you then have to introduce all this whether well, cell phone data about well what maybe there was in maybe maybe the curves are or the policy is confused by the fact that there were a lot of a lot of voluntary lockdowns. We do know a lot of voluntarism occurred when the scare occurred. So there's a lot of ambiguities. I tend to believe it probably did something, but let me actually now perhaps contribute this insight. It's probably appropriate to do so at this point. Uh, my, I, 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 I listen to and I read a lot of epidemiologists, but I do have a direct line to the epidemiologist Knut Witkowski, who was uh, head of uh, epidemiological research at Rockefeller for 20 years. And he, he has said that the mutation that, that has now been traced to Spain, a major mutation uh, traced to Spain, has probably has, has apparently come to the U.S., and that seemingly is the reason. That's the likely reason why we're beginning to see a, a, a resurgence of infections, although not in New York City, which is interesting. But but Knut points out that uh, what what a lockdown does, to the extent that it succeeds, is that it it gives the virus more chance to continue its life. It delays the herd immunity that kills the virus. Because herd immunity basically means a virus can only live in hosts. And so if, if it dies in Gene Epstein and I can't send it out to Rob Bernstein, then the virus is dead. And so, uh, and, and its chances of mutation are then limited. But if you have, a, if you flatten the curve and you delay the, the, the herd immunity by flattening the curve, uh, then, then you give the chance, of, uh, you give the virus a chance to mutate. And he says the best evidence is that the mutation that began in Spain was due to the flattening of the curve in Spain. And that mutation has now spread to other countries and spread to the U.S. So the grim reality is that the lockdown actually gives the virus most likely a new lease on That's life. That's really So in, yeah. in other words, yeah. this is theoretical. If well, lockdowns did well, work, no, 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 I'm just, oh, work with oh, me here. Oh, good, sorry. Theoretically, if the lockdowns did work, yeah. there turns out that there's an X factor that we overlooked, which is you're going to increase the odds of a virus mutation, That's right. which is going to only amplify the problem. So even if the lockdowns worked, yeah. you're not a winning strategy because you're going to increase the potentials for mutations. Mutation. Yes. And then, of course, now backing up, what is the reason for... Uh, a, uh, a, a, a flattening the curve strategy via lockdown. The reason is, of course, that you're going to overwhelm the hospitals, uh, you, the medical centers. Now, I, I, as far as I know, that didn't even happen in New York City, with, with, which, which, of course, was the epicenter. Uh, and uh, uh, that, that that and the reason it didn't happen was that the the New York they they had the resources they opened up the Javits Center as a field hospital they had some ship that they put off the that that came in that was also supposed to be a a floating field hospital and it never got used uh, and so uh, so we never even needed it in New York City the the I mean I I guess I mean obviously I don't have a, a, a complete research about every area in every section of the world, but certainly there is no, uh, I gather, no evidence that's compelling that has come to light that that, that, that's, that was ever a risk, even in New York City in the U.S. So therefore, that excuse for flattening the curve, for delaying the, the, the virus, for flattening the curve, uh, 
doesn't seem to apply. And of course, I mean, of course, the other excuse for flattening the curve and delaying the virus is that uh, is that then you wait for the vaccine to come. Now, uh, you know, we could get into that. I mean, I, I, I let's I've get been... into. Um, I got that next on the list. Sure, um, sure. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. let's take a second just to talk about herd immunity. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I'm just yeah. going to ask you a, a two part question, and then you know you can you can go off. But um, <laughs> the two part question is I. Uh, so it sounds like herd immunity isn't actually a viable strategy. It's not. So the, okay. It is not. Oh, no, no. I was saying it sounds like it is. Oh, yes. So my two-part question is, one, do you th- from what you've read or, you know, the people you've spoken to, do you think herd immunity is a good strategy? And then the second part to that question is, why do you think that's so lost um, kind of the media war where even just bringing it up, you're viewed as evil? Like if we actually have a good working strategy there, how did it absolutely just you know, lose the the PR battle that it's not even something you can reasonably discuss other than coming on the Run Your Mouth podcast. Those are excellent two part questions, Rob, and uh, I'm not. I'm going to stick to those questions because because taking the second question first, one of my main themes has indeed been that um, the the reason why herd immunity is difficult for people to accept the, the and is that. Uh, it's it's it takes a very tragic uh, view of the situation. The tragic view of the situation is that uh, that barring a vaccine, and uh, bar, uh, which 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 always at best even even accepting the claims being made by uh, by the by Pfizer and the other companies that have developed vaccine, it's it, it, it's it's weeks and weeks away. People are dying, so. Uh, we and we don't know how effective it's really going to be. Actually, in fact, I've recently read research showing that it may be not effective at all, which is very depressing to contemplate. We'll get to that later. But the point is about the tragic sense of life of the herd immunity is that is that herd immunity accepts the inevitable, which is that some people are, are not going to survive. That 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 we 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 basically have a virus, which of course we should practice, we should emphasize, basically afflicts uh, older people who already have uh, uh, underlying conditions, but it it could affect some younger people. It's going to get some people sick. It's it's not if you let the virus circulate, then it will do some harm. And so that's that's why uh, I think people have difficulty accepting because Americans cannot appreciate the tragic sense of life that you and I as Jews, Rob, understand full well after thousands of years of oppression. We understand that life is a series of trade-offs and that, and that the happy outcome that the lockdowns can just sort of get rid of the virus. This is an epidemic. It's a pandemic. A pandemic, an epidemic only ends with 50% becoming immune. And, and that's, of course, maybe partly due to a vaccine. Uh, but but in fact, as I recently read, there's no evidence that any of the flu vaccines have ever made a difference. We only we, It's sheer speculation that the flu vaccines we've taken in the past have ever made a difference. We had 60,000 deaths estimated a couple of years ago from the, flu, from the flu nationwide. And so these things do happen. The happy part of it is that it, it kills 76-year-olds like me rather than guys like you. And so, you know, I've had so, so the life years, you know, the life years left to me are fewer 
and then left to you. But the grim, tragic point about herd immunity, which I understand people have difficulty accepting, is that is that this is an act of God, that vi- the virus has struck us, and God decrees that you've got to achieve immunity if you're going to survive. I'm, as a, a friend of mine who's a, a, a Russian Jewish refugee from St. Petersburg, and I asked him about herd immunity, he's an endocrinologist at a well-known uh, hospital in New York City. I asked him, and he's been dealing with obese people. Tragically, he said, I, "He said deals with uh, diabetes. Diabetes and and COVID are treatable. But if somebody is really like eighty pounds overweight, the difficulty breathing is is really tragic to behold." You know, so he's been through it. So when I asked him, "Do you agree with herd immunity?" He said, "And indeed, Martin Kulthoff has put it that herd immunity is not a strategy." Herd immunity is like gravity. I like the way Koldorf put it. He said, if you're flying a plane, is gravity your strategy? No, but no, it's just that without gravity, the plane's not going to land. You know, uh, clearly herd immunity is simply textbook. And as my friend, the endocrinologist from Russia put it, he said, why do you think that the, that during the Black Plague of the 14th century, it, uh, not every the, the whole population didn't die? Why did it only take one third of the population? They, they didn't. They didn't have quarantine. They didn't know from not bumping into each other. They they had to live in those little huts and hovels. And on top of that, they didn't have medical care. How come it stopped at one third of the population? The reason it did is that even the Black Plague, which is, of course, many orders of magnitude worse than COVID, even that stopped with herd immunity. We hit herd immunity. And that's, that's, that's what God, Jehovah, has decreed for us. You and I, who are steeped in the Old Testament, uh, understand that tragic sense of so again, my long-winded answer to that is that herd immunity has grim implications, but it's basically unavoidable unless, of course, you argue that a, uh, that a vaccine could come along in no time and can cure everybody. We can get to the vaccine. The only the only uh, white cavalry arrival that can protect us all from death would be if the vaccine uh, come arrives and it gives us immunity uh, right away. So that's the only thing that could rescue us. But again, as I've said, that the truth of the matter is that no clinical trials have ever been run to prove that any of the vaccines that have been used ever made much of a difference in terms of saving lives. So that's why people have difficulty accepting herd immunity. But your first question, I think, Rob, was what had to do with what is herd immunity or why does it, right? Okay. No, I think I think you answered both. I was asking <laughs> if, it, if it works and why it lost the PR narrative. The yeah. answer is that it works because that's the system God put in place when viruses come along. Just like God put gravity in place. Right. And the, and the reason we lost the PR narrative is because it's honest and people, the same as death, they like to feel like government can just pay for everything. If we're pointing out the natural consequences or the reality of the situation, that doesn't play well in the media. Yeah, the only, the only, the only, of course, Deus Ex Machina is the is is that if the vaccine can arrive, you know, arrive two months ago, and we all get inoculated, and it's all over that way. Uh, but but what the only uh, the only other happy part about herd immunity is that is that there's very good evidence, for example, that New York City hit herd immunity uh, by June. Uh, and uh, because because I, the, the, again the lockdown was ill timed and uh, of course everybody insisted the lockdown made all the difference but the truth is that people were breaking the rules left and right. New York City uh, 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 is still quite flat. Basically, the death rate went into the single digits uh, by June and it continues in the single digits today. One or two people die per day from uh, from the virus compared to like about you know 
80 to 90 to 100 to 200, uh, a few hundred people who die every day of all kinds of other stuff in New York City. So basically, the virus is over in New York City. But And the reason why I want to m- make that point is that people say, well, herd immunity might never arrive. But analytically, when you look at, the, at why herd immunity seems to arrive so early, uh, is that uh, is that there are two things that I think that people tend to ignore. Even some of the epidemiologists seem to ignore them. I don't know why. One of them is cross immunity. And cross immunity, as I mentioned before, means that if you had some kind of flu before, you, you have developed antibodies, you have a cross immunity to this new uh, respiratory disease. And the best uh, classic case of cross immunity had to do with cowpox and smallpox, that, that it was observed that, that milkmaids were not catching smallpox, and, and the inference was that they were actually catching cowpox, cowpox, which was asymptomatic, and that was demonstrated. Cowpox was apparently giving them immunity, cross immunity to smallpox. That's very old human knowledge. That's what gave rise to the vaccine. Let's just infect them with a mild amount of cowpox and, and we'll defeat smallpox. So that, that was the original almost discovery of cross immunity. So we already have cross immunity. We already have T cells and antibodies that might be able to fight it off. So we only need maybe a 25% additional infection rate to achieve herd immunity. It looked as though most of the country, even aside from New York, was achieving herd immunity already until the mutation came. But what's interesting is that we find no evidence that we find evidence the mutation is hitting other parts of the country, but we don't find evidence that it's hitting New York City. And it's very possible that because in New York is an international city, because perhaps early mutations arrived before, that we are actually immune in New York City to uh, the virus. Now, you've left for Stamford, Connecticut, Rob. Very dangerous. I live in Manhattan, probably the safest area on earth. If you actually look at the data for New York C- City and then break it down to Manhattan, and now if I want to get ethnic, they, they, they break it down for ethnicities. Of course, I would ask you, there's Asians, there's whites, uh, there's Hispanics, and there's African-Americans. And probably you could even tell me right away, the Asians are the least affected. Those, you know, my wife is Japanese, you know, so, and, and then, of course, the whites are the next, and then the Hispanics and the blacks, and then Manhattan. So it clearly affects, you know, of course, that's, that's affected by, that's socioeconomics to some degree. Obviously, many more blacks and Hispanics, of course, are essential workers and are more exposed. Uh, and uh, so that's what's happened. And of, of course, but most importantly, of course, it's the age part of it. The age part of it is, by and large, it's killing people over 50. That basically, if you talk about life years lost, and then, and then if you look at what's happened to younger people who might be committing suicide, then that alone shows you that more life is lost. Because again, I would want to say, look, if Epstein dies at the age of 76, then, then you should really measure the loss in terms of my life years, what, how many life years remaining. But, but I'm not going to die because I don't have any uh, comorbidities. I don't have an underlying illness. If you take people who already have diabetes who are 80 years old, then how many life years or life months do they have left anyway? So really, the deaths have been quite minimal quite negligible. I got into that digression. But my only point, again, I want to emphasize is that the herd immunity story isn't quite as grim as as, as it's made out. But look, I read crazy stuff. Reason Magazine published an article talking about the the dubious argument of herd immunity. And it said something like that we haven't, we never achieved herd immunity to tuberculosis, to uh, 
and to what else? It listed uh, uh, tuberculosis and uh, polio and stuff like that. And I mean, those were cured with vaccines. But you know, in with respect to respiratory illnesses, the flus of, of which COVID is one. Just look at the C. I have CDC data going back to 2011. You constantly find the curve rises and hits a peak and then falls. We we const- respiratory diseases mutate. They have all kinds of problems, but there's always herd immunity to respiratory diseases, and they don't get defeated by vaccines. So again, I, I, perhaps I've, I've anticipated a couple of your questions, Rob. I'll put it back to you. Go ahead. Excellent. All right. So now let's talk about the vaccine, which they've oh, yeah. uh, been able to turn around in record time. They now yeah, have yeah. multiple different companies saying that they've got upwards of ninety yeah, percent yeah. success rate. So another two-part question for you. Um, First is, do you think that these vaccines are going to be good? And is there any reason to fear them? Well, I gather, Rob, uh, here I've I've only recently been learning from my various tutors on this subject. Uh, There is a good article in the the, the British Journal of Medicine uh, by a a professor of pharmacology, and he's on the staff. It's a peer-reviewed journal, and it is pretty upsetting. The guy, the guy basically says that the 90% claims have just have to do with whether people develop symptoms. They really did no follow-ups uh, of people with, uh, having to do with hospitalizations or or deaths. Uh, that uh, that that uh, they. Uh, that, that they really are making, they have not, on top of that, dealt with the possibility of side effects, that some vaccines can have a side effect that disturb the immune system for other other issues. That's dispiriting. I, I Look, I, I'm, I was hoping as much as anybody that the vaccines could arrive. I know that some of our libertarian uh, associates have been talking about the, the triumph of the free market, that Pfizer did it on its own. Look at the way, look at the way our firms respond to the challenge. And, uh, and so isn't it just sort of a victory for American capitalism that they did it or they, they, like they, they had, they, they are completely, by, as you perhaps know, they, they have no liability. The government has given them no, has bestowed on them no liability for harm from the vaccine. So uh, and and so that you know if you and I die from the vaccine we can't sue the company but we'll get a few bucks you know, our families will get a few bucks from the government so but when you do that when you protect a company from liability then there, then there's no the incentive is certainly diminished uh, to uh, to make sure the vaccine is not going to have side effects uh, so. Based upon what I know, uh, the 90-95% claims are just very limited to the idea that 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 of the of the like uh, the thousand, it was only about what a hundred people that they had. Is it a thousand or a hundred? I have to look it up. But very few people that were remaining who who from the large sample. It actually was a fewer than a hundred. So it's like 95% out of a hundred did not develop symptoms. The claims are uh, unfortunately have been way overblown by the media, um, even in terms of the of whatever they could deliver on a positive basis. And then uh, and then the possible dangers and the side effects are quite disturbing. Uh, I mentioned that even though. Uh, in the back of my mind, I really feel that if we get lucky, if the vaccines don't kill people, uh, then uh, in which you know we don't know, uh, and uh, if the vaccines are distributed, then it could give a cover 
to uh, to Biden and the governors. And I do think that they are motivated right now to try to get the economy going again, now that Trump has been brought down. Uh, they, they, they care about their tax base, the governors do, the mayors do. Uh, I don't think that Biden, the Biden administration wants to wreck the economy anymore, now that Biden is taking over. And so if they can use the vaccines as cover uh, and say, well, we, we, we developed the vaccine and everything is fine, uh, then, uh, then I'm not gonna complain. Um, but but in terms of everything I do understand, and again, I recommend the, did, did you have a show notes page to run your mouth? Uh, the, the way Tom was You do, you're bullshitting. <laughs> no, 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 we, episode description, topics and links, absolutely. Oh, that's so great. Uh, Dave doesn't have a show notes page because you went, to, you finished college, right, Robin? Dave, Dave <laughs> is a college truck. It only took me five years, but yes. You went on the five-year plan, Rob, I see. Okay. Yeah, and- well, okay, was, Dave, it took Dave about five months to flunk out. I guess <laughs> so that's why he doesn't have a show notes page. But anyway, uh, yeah. So yeah, the 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 the, the uh, British Journal of Medicine has its summary. You know, some of its technical language gets a little confused, but the summary from this guy is pretty disturbing. Um, and but I but I hope. But again, the media is is cheerleading the the vaccines, and uh, and my hope is that it won't kill people. They won't kill the people and, uh, but, and so on. Yeah, go ahead. So yeah. what you're saying, which is really interesting, is that yeah. we don't necessarily even need to have widespread usage of the vaccine. There's a possibility that the governors were overly aggressive in shutting down. They actually were looking, you're making a crazy face like this is not what you were saying, but go it yes. sounds like <laughs> they were okay with even harming the economy because they thought that it would benefit Biden. And now that Biden's in office, they want to get things back up and running. So oh, it could no. be that some of the over the way that they overexerted control or stalled the economy, yeah. they'll go, hey, there's a vaccine here and we can reopen. And that doesn't really have all that much to do with the vaccine. But in the macro, it will have a positive effect because the governors will will reopen. No, but um, by the way, Rob, yeah. I, I really, by the way, in this, terms of this interview, by the way, I've done a lot of podcast interviews and I really want to say, I really appreciate what you've been doing. You, you, that I, I, give, I give my long-winded statement and you, you give a summary and then you bounce it back to me and, and this is great. I really, I, I think this is a great way to go. It really is. And not, not everybody does that. They just go on to the next point. Uh, that was a pretty good summary of what I just said. Indeed, absolutely. I'm sorry for making a face. You know, the, gov- that the government, you know, the, the governors, obviously, you know, who can read their minds uh and you know obviously i think cuomo loves to kick ass you know i know i, I have a friend frank gambino who's part of the soul forum who went to high school with with uh, with with cuomo he knows he knows he was a thug even then you know and a real asshole of a guy in high school and he's grown up to be the same thing. that's the governor of new york city new york state uh, and uh, so he probably likes uh doing what he does but but i imagine that you and i agree that that clearly uh, the 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 virus and the lockdowns is they are indeed what brought down Trump. The, the economy was booming. Probably Trump would have gotten reelected, but for the lockdown, but for the COVID and but for the lockdowns. And so, uh, and that's rational. So I do think that that was part of the motivation to bring, to bring Trump down. And, and, uh, and, and they didn't care about the unemployment. Uh, they, and now they're motivated in the opposite direction, uh, as you say. And, I, and so I think the vaccines are going to be cover for them. And my hope, my hope is that enough of the population will take the vaccine. I certainly will not. I would, see. By the way, when you terms of, terms of trade offs and risks, Rob, I, I guess I would say that um, that to 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 somebody uh, my age who does have diabetes or who is a hundred pounds overweight, who does have a comorbidity, so that if you catch the virus, there is a chance it could kill you. 
Uh, maybe, maybe you can make an argument for taking the vaccine. Uh, in my case, there's no good argument. I mean, and, I, and I'm 76, I just don't have a comorbidity. New York City data, this, I, I surprise people when I, <clears throat> when I say this, <clears throat> they actually have <clears throat> a breakdown by age and by illness. They, they list all the illnesses that are comorbidities, cancer, heart, lungs, everything. And then, and then they have a list of how many people over the age of 65, in fact, over the age of 75 as well, have died in New York City of COVID who, who had no underlying illness. Now that's me. I'm over the age, I have no underlying illness. And right, and from the beginning, from February to the present, it's been 12 people. That they actually give the number, you know, eight and then four. Twelve people in New York City have died of COVID and they over the age of 65 and had no underlying illness. That's me. So, so am I going to be one of those 12? I mean, there are 1.2 million people in New York City over the age of 65. Uh, maybe 100,000. My chances of dying of COVID are far less than my combined chances of lightning, getting shot, getting run over, uh, and so on. So, I shouldn't take the uh, vaccine and certainly you I, should not. No, right? I will not. And I definitely feel that we should, uh, you know, let other people experiment with, with it first. I don't need to be the first one to find out. Well, what I, what I yeah. do find fascinating about the vaccine is that I find both stories plausible. I find the story that typically speaking, the FDA um, has so many regulations, it's hard to bring things to market and that it's possible that you get rid of some of those yeah. things and you can actually speed up the process but then I also look at the profit incentives of these companies and you, you hear the wacky talk about vaccines that I also, at the same time, while I think the FDA is not helping us out, I look at this one and I'm like, well, I don't really trust that this thing's just good and ready to go. Okay. Well, okay. That's good, bro. Okay. Now, okay. This binary thinking, Rob, when you said, let me just correct you then do a little nuance in between. Sure. But the point is that, that, that clearly uh, you're right to say that ironically here we've complained about the FDA holding on to a, a, a life-giving drug uh, uh, for five years. And, uh, and then they announced, you know, this, this will save, uh, you know, uh, 10,000 lives per year. And then the, the proper response that should then be, well, then you just killed 50,000 people because you delayed introducing the drug for five years, you know, and, and uh, uh, that's one problem. And perhaps you know the story about the AIDS drugs that, that were, you know, that, that, that did indeed uh, basically turn AIDS into a into a non-lethal disease, uh, the gay community was up in arms, and in the I guess was it back to the eighties, nineties? I'm losing track of time. That that they, they, they that they said to the FDA and the media even uh, uh, got sober about this. People are dying every day of AIDS, and you want to sit on these medications and 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 determine whether they cause any problem in the long run. But but obviously, if you're going to die of AIDS next week or next month or in two months then you'll take the medication anyway because because it's because that could give you a chance to survive so therefore obviously the issues disaggregate they, they the risk rewards disaggregate and so if we're going to have an fda which i don't believe we need because we're going to have we'd have plenty of good sources good nonprofits, which will give us information because everybody will want that information there will be a market demand for it what are the risks i that's why i said earlier rob that if if i even in your case let's say you had a, a comorbidity let's say let's say you had a severe lung problem then then you might 
consider that, yes, the vaccine might kill me, but I mean, you might. I mean, maybe, maybe even if you did, you would say no. But, but certainly I could see an argument that if the vaccine could make a difference, then, then if you have a comorbidity and you are like already 75, maybe there's an argument for taking the vaccine. My only point is that, that clearly the, 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 uh, the FDA, if it plays a role in, at all, should be in an advisory capacity. It should say, these are the trade-offs. Make up your own mind consulting a doctor and getting a second opinion. Uh, that's the point. The FDA should never be in a position to say that 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 we're not going to allow the drug because indeed, you know, the 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 old point was made. Let's say you have a drug that could that could cure cancer. It's not ninety percent chance of curing cancer, but it's got a one percent chance of having a lethal side effect. If you are in charge of the FDA. You're you're at the FDA. You might you might, and if you're there to judge it, your motivations will be completely skewed toward that one percent. It'll be completely skewed toward the one percent because if you bring it out, the one percent will 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 haunt you that you sacri- that you approve something that had a one percent chance and the one percent comes out to be true, but it had a ninety percent chance of saving lives. So so then that's why if you're a bureaucrat, but if you're a capitalist. Then, then at least if you're at least having some integrity, you say it's got a one percent chance of killing, but a ninety percent chance of curing cancer. It's so, it's also interesting because when you're the bureaucrat, yeah. if for example, think of all the economic gains that might come from that ninety percent. You yeah. know, people don't have to deal with cancer. Yeah. You're not really rewarded for that, or people don't praise you for it. Versus, yeah. you will be punished for that one percent death. Right. So if you want to hold on to your job, even though that's the worst decision for society you're going to make the decision around that 1% death, which is, that's very interesting. Precisely, precisely. And that's why, that's why the capitalist has a better motivation. On the other hand, as I've said, there will no, there would certainly be a, a vast amount of demand and, and uh, for the, the informational services that do, do independent evaluations of these drugs. Uh, and uh, that, would, that would mean a, a far better functioning situation than anything the FDA could do. That's why I call it the food and death administration. (laughs) All right. So I want to transition to another topic here. And we are kind of coming up um, against time. I have a little bit more time, but I don't want to hold you against your will. So if we're going long, feel free. I've got a a few more hours, Rob, for you. I I appreciate the way you've been summarizing what I say. You're you're getting an A in this this tutorial, Rob. You're doing very well. Wow. Thank you. I really, I do, I do appreciate that. Um, So this next topic that I want to get into, uh, I, 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 this next topic is over my head and I'm putting oh. together this run your mouth end of year thing. And oh. one of the things I find are the most was the most underreported this year is all the money that's been given over to the big oh. banks and to oh. wall street. Yeah, yeah. There's been trillions of dollars handed over and I was trying to kind of understand it as best as I can. And there are a mm. lot of things that happened. You had the repo market bailouts, which happened before coronavirus. Then you had the SPV loans, which were, um, very interesting in terms of buying bonds directly, which I believe is against the Fed's charter. I was trying to piece together everything that was going on, and I just got nervous that maybe not only do I have this really wrong, but I'm misrepresenting the information. Uh, So I want to kind of go through a few of these elements and see if I have my understanding a little bit right, and then maybe you can add some insight or tell me where I'm getting it very wrong. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so my first question for you is, these were the numbers that I had seen, but they seemed really large. And so I just wanted to check and see if maybe you had seen something different. But I saw that before the coronavirus starting in 2019, there's basically been $6 trillion given over 
um, you know, as bank bailouts. And then since coronavirus started, we're up to about $9 trillion. Now, not all of that is direct money because I guess the Treasury gives over money to the Fed, which then gets, you know, multiplied because there's some sort of a, um, there's a leveraging effect in terms of when the money's given over to them, to then the way it's filtered in. So I was just you curious. The Treasury know, gives it to the Fed. Okay, go ahead. I, I don't know if I have all this right. Well, I just want to know if those numbers are essentially right, where there's been basically $9 trillion given over you know, to the banking sector since the beginning yeah, of 2019. You sent me that number, Rob, and I, and I guess I should have done more homework in terms of, of the real green eye, eye shade look. I, I, I guess the, my best answer is that the numbers sound plausible. Uh, it, it, it may, I mean, you do have to, I, I guess I will say that sometimes you do have to look out for the potential of double counting because there's a lot of sort of smoke and mirrors in the way this works. I mean, you just said the treasury gives money over to the Fed. And actually, because usually we say the Fed gives them, the, the Fed prints the money, creates the money, and usually gives it over to the treasury. Usually it's in that direction. But certainly, I, I guess, can, can I just say in general that that you're correct, that there was, there was indeed a sort of massive intervention basically coming from the Fed, from the Fed's, you know, quote-unquote printing press. And so those numbers are ballpark right, perhaps perhaps on the high side, uh, if, we, if we had to sort it out. So let's proceed from there and say there was indeed massive intervention. Okay. Uh, this of the kind you say. Yeah. So now I look at the, what I can understand of the repo market yeah. and wow. what, what I think happened there, and I'm wondering if you even think this is plausible, but I see yeah. that essentially the repo loans are the loans made between um, essentially banks so that they can meet their margin requirements on um, either on their, you know, their, their capital requirements for the bank, like what they need to have in terms of the 10% of what the bank, you know, the bank has their 10% um, bank deposit requirement in terms of all the loans that they make. And then you also have margin requirements, not necessarily margin requirements, but just basically your payments on loans to kind of keep, uh, all right, I, I'm already going too down a wormhole. Wow, I don't need wow, to go down. Wow. In the okay. repo market, they, the loan rate between banks to hit the requirements jumped up to 10%. And the government said, we can't have that intervene. Yeah. I think that that is the first market signal that there isn't enough money going around that can be lent to government that in order to manipulate interest rates and make it seem like, hey, we can afford to borrow money for cheap, the first market that they had to intervene in is basically the, the market between banks where they're lending money to each other. In other words, if the if banks, you would think a bank it's very easy for a bank to get a loan, especially an overnight loan. How much interest rate should a bank have to pay to get a single loan that they're going to pay back to another bank overnight? I would say that's a pretty secure loan. But if they got to pay 10% between each other, think about what the market interest rate really should be. Yeah. There clearly isn't, there clearly is more demand for money than there is supply. And so that would be a pretty clear indicator of the fact that there should be a significant raise in interest rates. And so if you're the Fed and the US government and you want to pretend, hey, we can borrow money for nothing, you instantly intervene in that market to make it go back to an interest rate of, you know, one to 2%. Yes. Wow, Rob. Okay. You, you're really fascinated with this stuff. That's interesting. Yeah. You're, you're really getting into the micro. Of, I mean, well, I shouldn't say micro, but certainly get, getting into the details of what happened. Uh, and uh, I'm, I'm going to be running my mouth a little bit and give you my best answer. Because uh, I've been trying to think in terms of the broader picture, but I, I don't want to duck your uh, really pointed questions, Rob, because you're doing, you've been doing so well uh, in general. Uh, and uh, the, the, my, my best understanding of what happened is that there was a kind of 
of a credit crunch going on. But your your hypothesis is that is that this is like the government is is like putting out a fire by analogy that that the interest rates are really going to crop up. And but you you do understand that that uh, that even if you're right as far as it goes that they are that, that the real interest rate should have been ten percent, but but they intervene and uh, with, with with liquidity and and they put out the ten percent fire, uh, then uh, which I take it is a reasonable summary of what you just said. So here you're in a way becoming the uh, the mentor here, and I'm running back at you what you've just said because you're obviously very incisive. That's more or less what you're hypothesizing that yeah. That, that, but bear in mind that that that's not likely to work because if because obviously uh, if you flood if you flood the market with money then there is going to be an inflationary spike happening and um, and probably it, it's nothing you know you 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 can stop i'm only saying that by and large people and including foreign investors still regard us treasuries which of course have, have blown up by trillions as a safe haven they're still willing to accept very low returns on those treasuries. And so I think the broader picture is that the U.S. economy is still leaving, leading a charmed life. My, my best understanding is that what does happen, uh, and I can't unravel it completely, is that credit crunches and the seizing up of capital markets doesn't occasionally happen, that liquidity dries up and, and some, something of, the, uh, of this sort happens. I, I believe that in a free market in banking, there would be uh, there, there would be uh, 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 banks responding, other banks responding, and clearing up the liquidity crunch. I thought I think of it as a temporary liquidity crunch. I don't think it is as insolvency or real signal of ten percent. But that that's probably the best answer I can give because again, I can only point out that that at the end of the day, what we've seen over the last several months is this massive expansion in borrowing, massive expansion in money creation. And yet what has prevailed for the basically for the last decade or so is that the U.S. Treasury gets away with selling long-term bonds for so very low interest rates. What's interesting about that, though, yeah, yeah, is yeah. I, from what I'm seeing, yeah. the Fed is starting to buy up more of its own debt. So in this yes, year, yes. I think we're up to 16%, yes, yes, which yes. would suggest to me that there isn't as much natural market demand for it as much yes. as we're having to come in and buy it up ourselves, which would also seem to suggest to me that, in, yeah. like, that interest rates should be going up because there's actually less demand for our debt. Yes. Okay. Well... All right, but you said less than demand for our debt. Recognize that that the supply of debt, you know, jumped up by trillions. That's fair. So, okay. Yeah, I didn't really consider that. that. So you see that. So the point is that there certainly there has still been a fair amount of buying of treasuries by foreigners by others. Okay. So then the so, other you know, the other little piece of this to explore, and this is yeah. where to me it goes yeah. over my head in terms of how complicated it gets. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I've been introduced to this, uh, I guess what they call the euro dollar, which is essentially yeah. that um, it, when it comes to the US, there's a maximum amount of money that could be made off of a bank deposit. If I put $100 into a bank, they can basically you know create $1,000 against that $100, right? Or $900. I guess they can create $900 against my $1,000. They can loan out, if I put $100 oh, into a bank, okay. they can loan out $900. So $900 has been created off my $100 bank deposit. It's different, okay, yeah, yeah. right. It's different abroad 
because if you take my $100 bank deposit abroad, they don't have the same banking requirements as the US does. And so then you create the Euro dollar market, which is astronomically larger than the US market, then because the amount of money that is created and multiplied off of single base bank deposits are much larger. The bigger picture is that you end up with that there's massive amounts of what in my head, let's call it derivative or fictional money in existence where massive amounts of money are generated off of these small bank deposits, but the actual amount of dollars in the system is not nearly anywhere near the amount of derivative or money that's lent out that's backed by these dollars. From what I understand, just to give the full picture, part of the demand for the treasury, the US treasury, is that it's actually good collateral on these loans. People need to constantly be servicing the debt on all these loans that exist in the euro dollar market against these banking deposits. And so there is a built-in demand for constant dollars in the system, which is creating the crunch. But then it would go back to the picture that I'm painting, which is that there's actually... um, too much demand for actual physical like dollars, you know, like the actual good reserves of the treasuries, um, which now I'm, 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 I'm kind of getting confused as I talk, but it would seem to suggest to me that interest rates, that there's more demand um, for actual dollars. And so interest rates should be higher, which is back to my original premise, which was that when you saw it, basically interest rates, um, you know, jump between banks, it's because there's a higher demand for actual currency and so people should need to pay for that i'm sorry would you say and that's you you where you have me a little confused you understand that when you talk about dollars and then you talk about uh like treasury bills take that as an example then you know that in a way treasury bills are near dollars they're near money you, so I'm, I'm well, i would about- think to me the two um serve as let's just say prime um tr- prime capital in terms of like meeting margin requirements and so if like, you know, I guess if I'm a bank, I can hold one of two things. I can hold dollars or I can hold um, the, the T-bills. Like that's well, you, kind you, of what you, would you, be you, my reserves. Well, well, you are going to hold. Well, I mean, to the extent that, you know, when you talk about getting going into cash on the part of almost every, you know, that any central bank around the world, they basically uh, they, they basically hold interest bearing. Yes, they hold short term instruments. They hold treasury bills. You know, and uh, so, I mean, bear in mind, if, if there's no if, if you have uh, if you have billions of holdings, then a little bit of extra return on those billions is worth it. And and the treasury bills are safe haven. So I'm not clear about your distinction. Ralph. L- l- let me maybe give you a best I can do in terms of a broader perspective, you do, you've sort of been flirting with that point that essentially, essentially the currency of the world is the dollar that, that, that essentially uh, the, the U S economy uh, is very large, but we actually account for a, a lower percentage of, of actual trade in the world. But, but when you look at the, uh, the data on, on trading of currencies, the dollar is on one side of or the other of the trade in 90% of the cases. Everybody, it's not just oil that trades in dollars; it's just everything else that trades in dollars. And that, so essentially, that that's the credit card. That's the that's the currency that everybody uses, and that's a sort of a network effect that's very difficult to dislodge. I mention that only because I'm I, I'm pursuing my broader point, which is that. A lot of what you say is intriguing, but I think it has to be recognized against the background of the fact that the U.S. economy still leads a charmed life. You still have to say the U.S. economy is screwed up, but compared to what? Compared to the rest of the world? Well, the rest of the world is screwed up. And uh, and so uh, just as... Uh, 
all uh, much of what you describe about disturbing developments have been really happening for the last, certainly since the Great Recession of 0809. A lot of the money mischief that you mentioned uh, has started to occur in 2010, 2011, 2012. And doom and gloomsters like Peter Schiff and David Stockman kept predicting year after year after year that, that, that a recession was just around the corner. Uh, and uh, so, and that it doesn't happen. Isn't has not part happened. of that, yeah. what you bring up with the Great Recession to kind of fit in, um, yeah. and firstly, I've read both the Stockman's books and yeah. what I understood of it um, were fascinating. And I will say, I think it's my, my natural Jew angst, which yeah. makes me a sucker for the doom and gloom stories. And sometimes I wonder if I just have a, more negative outlook because it just kind of fits my disposition. So the, the, the financial Nazis are always coming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and the Goyim will not hide us under their under, <laughs> in their basement. No, no, I wonder. No, no, I do wonder if it's not that I have such an open mind for these topics. If I'm just yeah. kind of a sucker for the bear market narratives. Yeah. Um, but from what I understand is, if you look at kind of what I'm describing, it used to be that um, these packages of housing market loans were actually considered to be good collateral. And if you look at the oh. You know, basically what happened in that in the housing crisis, which in my opinion was a credit asset bubble created by the government in terms of all the money that they made available to that sector. Yeah. So when that when that imploded and all that money basically disappears from the market, you end up with a system that um, basically has lost a lot of its, it, it, you know, its assets, which is why so much money keeps needing to be poured into it. It's because there actually isn't like in other words, I, I guess the best I can describe of it, and I, I'm talking above my pay grade here, but if we've got our, let, let's say you got a little circle of like actual cash, and then you got your giant circle of all the derivative products that are revolving around that little thing. So oh. once, once you had the housing market crash, there isn't enough capital to actually service what's supposed to be like this giant big pie of money, which is all the derivative products kind of against the real assets that exist in the world. And since we haven't made up all of that lost capital, you are in a spiral now where government needs to keep on putting, basically making funds available to the financial sector because, like, they're they're in a hole. They're still digging themselves out of a hole. Okay, all right. Uh, you 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 pick up on some broad points. I guess the, maybe the uh, I'm I'm perhaps going to give you uh, inadequate answers, but I only want to point out that when you start with 0809, uh, that. Uh, David Stockman has written uh, that, that one of his books was very good at forgetting. Great Deformation. The Great Deformation. It had some good things in it. But David and Peter Schiff, and you, you, you're focusing on David, so I'll deal with him. He's been predicting a, a, an, an economic collapse every year since 2012. He goes on CNBC and, and he says, you know, we've got to give the economy a few more months. So how come the economic collapse didn't happen? What, and because I would say to David that if you get it wrong year after year after year, maybe you want to have an agonizing reappraisal of, of why you're getting it wrong. Why are you a stopped clock? Yeah, that's right twice a day. We're going to have some the, the recession. But what, what analytical insights are you missing? So I'm again, in a way, I'm just addressing your point, maybe in broad terms. Uh, and I, I say that there is an awful lot of entrepreneurial energy out there, but you, you are now talking about dollars and, and the rest of it. D didn't that analysis of yours, uh, which you're talking about, all these derivatives built on the dollars, 
wasn't that true in 2011 and 2012 too? So I guess the only collapse occur. Right. So the only argument, I I, I think you're right. And that's what's interesting with the bears is that they continuously get it wrong. But it's like that old adage of you can't fight the Fed. Um, So the Fed's a new territory. A couple of years ago, it was quantitative easing. Now they're buying bonds. Next, maybe they're going to buy stocks directly. That's possible. So you might just have that it's tough to time the market. Someone like David Stockman is in theory, right, that it's not a sustainable system. He just keeps getting it wrong in terms of his timing because the Fed breaks its own charter and does more and more to inflate the bubble. Now, you're is that- a comic, You're a comic, uh, Robin. You <laughs> can appreciate my line that okay. in forecasting as in comedy, timing is everything. And so, but- Okay, okay. that's funny. That, that's a fair That's a fair. Well, what I'm saying is that, you know, David, look, again, David, I, I had David at-, at Another, I interviewed David at an organization called Junto years ago. David was telling everybody to try to buy treasuries. Okay, I could get down that route. I just, David has amassed millions of dollars, so he's buying treasuries and he's making like 1% on his money, but he's living, living high off the hag from that. So he's telling everybody to stay away from the stock market. And they missed a lot of opportunities from doing that. You know, you, you should be responsible if you're giving people advice that implies investment. And he makes it, and Peter Schiff, of course, also makes, makes investment recommendations. You could, you should at least take some responsibility. You, you do, you, you can't keep saying the economy is going to fall apart. This He puts a timing on it. I debated him on Tom Woods, by the way, and, and Tom was appalled at my rudeness to him, and, <laughs> uh, and uh, as were other people, because David actually said, oh, I've never put, I've never put a, time, a timing on my forecast. He was just bullshitting. You know, was another, that, you ever, uh, James yeah. Records or Jim's Re- Jim Records is the same oh, yeah. way oh, yeah, where every single, like, he'll go on the news and tell you next month is when gold's taken off. And yeah. he's done that every month for, you know, seven, eight years. That's the stopped clock. That's we, that's the joke about the stopped clock. The point is, my, my only point is that, that I do, I do think that what is, uh, and again, I'm not getting into the nitty gritty of your point about about the. That's because it was probably nonsense, so it's hard to respond well, to. Well, well, I, <laughs> no, I, I, I'd have to know enough to get underneath it. So I don't know if it's nonsense at all. But but I always I'm necessarily nonsense, and maybe making a mistake or all because indeed, as you say, the, the, the financial world is filled with with with, whole, with with smoke and mirrors of different kinds. It's easy to double count something. It's it's easy to to miss certain other trends. I do think that the U.S. economy is indeed headed for trouble. Uh, and uh, I, I, that's why I buy $1,000 worth of Bitcoin every month and $1,000 worth of gold every month. And my Bitcoin portfolio is doing quite well. The, my gold portfolio has not been doing well at all recently. And, and I, you know, I noticed Peter Schiff is getting quite embarrassed. The fact that gold is, has been tanking, but Bitcoin has been rising. I buy them both as hedges against the future. I also own the stock market. So therefore, you are talking about somebody who wants to hedge against the bearish scenario, who basically acknowledges the bearish scenario in terms of, of what you seem to be implying. But, but my only point is that in terms of timing it, um, we, we at least have to pay attention to something that's ignored, which is that there is a lot of entrepreneurial energy in the U.S. economy. There, 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 is a, there, is a, there, there are a lot of ways in which uh, uh, the, the entrepreneurs muddle through. We have more startups and more new, new IPOs starting over the last, more people starting their own business over the last few months. And so we tend to minimize that. My framework is an unfettered economy should grow at about 7% a year, double in value every 
every 10 years. Uh, uh, really, we're just crawling along the long term by 2% uh, because, because of all the ways in which we have instability and all the ways in which entrepreneurship gets punished. And then my other broad framework is that, that we are leading a charmed life. Uh, the, the U.S., I mean, by we, is leading a charmed life because the rest of the world has a lot of problems and, and, looks to, and still regards our treasuries as a safe haven. So I think that's the broader framework. Although, by the way, you mentioned housing. I'm, I am beginning to get disturbed by the, the housing market. I, I do think that a housing bubble is forming uh, as formed before. I, mean, I, only, I tend to look at real indicators less than, than, than the subtle ones that you look at. Uh, the, the real indicators having to do with, with price earnings ratio in the stock market, different ways of measuring it that are standard. And um, and the housing, uh, the house price in relation to the rents, house versus rents is actually a reason, and house prices relative to inflation. And, and in, in 2019, going into 2020, neither of those two indicators were flashing bubbles, the frothiness, but not bubbles. I could compare the, the price earnings ratios of, of, of late 2019, early 2020 with, with a, a, a 1999, that there you really did have a bubble staring you in the face. Uh, with respect to the housing measures, uh, uh, the, the bubbles of 04 and 05 were staring you in the face. We had nothing like that in 99. That's why I thought going into 2000, we, we had all this instability. Uh, I thought that, the, uh, the, uh, that uh, the expansion would continue at its slow, ponderous rate of 2%, but 2% does accumulate to something at least. It's not nothing. Thank God for small favors. Uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, but um, but the, the, I think that uh, people like uh, David and, and Peter tend to underestimate the, the, the fact that, the, that there is still a capitalist right. economy out there that still is entrepreneurial energy out there and that makes progress. So that's my broad framework. However, Going forward, uh, what, what, is, what is the Rob Bernstein prediction? You might as well run your mouth, Rob. You predict, <laughs> you predict uh, a recession, what, by the, uh, by the uh, winter? So when, that, when, is, um, that is a very, uh, that's a fair question. I, I'm not a slick investor in any way. Lucky slick? for me, I don't have a lot of funds that I have to invest. Well, so, what is the size of your portfolio, Rob? <laughs> uh, you don't, you don't want to know, mister. <laughs> you don't want to know. Oh, um, okay. No, I, I, I haven't sat down to research it. I am curious to look yeah. at the strategy of kind of buying out of money puts on the S&P. I don't know oh, that yeah. I'm going to actually partake in that. Um, I, I'm lucky that, you know, I mean, I bought some Bitcoin and some gold. So like I'm kind of secure on those fronts. Um, but the answer is I'm more interested in these topics than I have the time. I'm not an investor. I, I'm not. I, you know, I, I, I podcast. I try and make my money in stand up. I try and invest in me. That's kind of my strategy. I see. So your last will and testament has got to be, you know, I, I, will, I will my T-shirt to uh, yes. my relatives <laughs> and my underwear. <laughs> and and my Heshi socks to, to Dave Smith. Okay. That's exactly right. Um, all right. So just while I have you here, last question, and I really appreciate you sticking around through it's the whole fun, episode. It's been fun, Rob. Yeah, yes. Um, so I just couldn't have you on the show and not ask you about this because I'm really bad with stats and numbers. Yeah. Based on everything that you've seen about this past election oh. uh, and your expertise, do you think that some voting fraud existed here or do you think that there's no real evidence of it? I I only know what I learned from uh, from part of the problem with Dave Smith and Rob Bernstein. So uh, you know, so I'm just going to tell you what you <laughs> heard. But I mean, I don't. Don't you think, Rob, that the number the numbers are too big uh, to uh, to be uh, 
uh, to be voted fraud, even though there's a fair amount of fraud, I'm sure, that, uh, that the, the, margin, the margins in the key states, you know, given the arithmetic of the Electoral College, maybe you, you're, you, know, you can add up the arithmetic. Isn't, don't you have to make some extreme assumptions across to give enough electoral votes uh, over to Trump that you take from Biden? Isn't that right that the numbers are rather daunting? Um, no, I don't. No, I don't. Really? I, really? I, I know that. I think it's basically you got to flip. What was it? Pennsylvania, Wisconsin and one other state. Really? And the, the biggest argument that I think the, here were the two arguments I think I saw that were somewhat compelling yeah. is one. It doesn't make a lot of sense that I guess Biden saw this many more votes in those areas than Obama did, that there was more enthusiasm for Biden and Obama. Now, the flip side might be that the country's older, so there's more eligible voters and that more people voted because of mail-in voting, maybe. But I think it's hard. Also, Trump got more votes in this election in those areas than he did in the last one. So it's weird that he would have attracted more voters and lost. You also have the fact that I guess it it seemed like he was winning until they did the dumps, which just seemed a little bit odd that they dumped votes that were so much in one person's favor. So now these are kind of the broad arguments for what appears to be weird in the election. Yeah. Um, but, you know, some, sometimes people are pointing to these models and they're like, this violates this stat law. This violate, I just don't find that stuff so compelling and I don't really understand it. Um, and I think that they've done such a lackluster job of really, I, I don't know. It seems to me like if there was fraud on this level that and I was in charge, I would have done more to police it beforehand or try and catch these guys. It just seems like Trump kind of had such a losing attitude about it from the beginning that I, I almost don't believe that it's true. And the court cases have been so disappointing, but I think the big picture of what they pointed to to say, Hey, there's some screwy things here. Yeah. You know, I, I, I think there's more to be investigated, but not by me because it, it's not, I don't have the resources and it's over my head. Well, you, well, you and uh, you and Dave have been uh, actually very interesting about that. And here, uh, here I'm, I'm, I would only be here to interview you. Although my, 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 I guess my two questions, uh, or that uh, isn't on, on the one side. Of course, Trump getting more votes is possible, but also isn't isn't uh, Trump derangement syndrome some kind of explanation for why Biden got more votes? You know that that you know the stop Trump, the hatred of Trump attitude uh, among enough voters, so that Biden would get more votes than ever and Trump would get more. Is that possible? I Trump think could, the no? answer is yes, it's possible. But I think we fall into a little with the Trump derangement syndrome. I don't know that if you travel, we, you and I, uh, we, I are like, we follow the news and we live in New York, which means we're confronted with a lot of that. Yeah. I don't know if outside of the media or specifically these very liberal areas, yeah. you've got this overwhelming amount of people that are walking around with the Trump derangement syndrome. Mm-hmm. I think that's a word that we've used because we watch the news and we're like, we can't believe that people are acting in this way. But it's the same way I've been preached to about... Um, PC culture and how prevalent that is. And yet I don't know a single person in my life, except my younger sister. It's funny. My younger sister, four years behind me, went to Columbia and everything I hear described about like college kids, she's that person now. But I don't know anyone else who has that (laughs) attitude or mentality. And so it's, it's always funny to me when I get like talked to a lot about that there's a lot of, it's kind of like a sales thing where they go, everybody feels this way. And they try and make you feel like you're the odd mm. one. And so you should reshape your point of views because everybody thinks calling something gay is offensive. Or right, let, mm. let, let's just say that as an example. I'm not saying it's not, I'm not taking a point of view, yeah. but they try and say to you, Hey, you can't possibly say that because everyone in the whole country will hate you if you say that. And so they try and convince you that so that you change your mind. I don't know that that's actually 
prevalent everywhere because the news tells me it is. So just to go with the Trump, Trump derangement syndrome, I don't know if that's that prevalent in Pennsylvania that there was a massive amount of voters with that much hatred of Trump. Now, maybe it's possible, but I'm also saying it's possible that you and I live in New York and watch the media. Right. And so that's more, pre- pre- like it's being preached to us as being more prevalent than it actually is. And, and I guess my only, my, my only other question uh, here, based upon, I assume is less knowledge than you have, is that when you read about uh, the, uh, the cases that have been brought, you would imagine that if there's something to it in terms of what you're implying, that the arguments that were brought to court could have been better? Or is it just that Trump's, that you know, Giuliani and that legal team are just idiots? I mean, is, is it something bothering you? You think so, the judges are just yeah. completely biased? Is that no, I don't, I don't think that the judges are, yeah. are completely biased. Yeah. Um, I, I, I think either what the, there's two possibilities here. One is this is all fabrication. Trump's just claiming that there is voter manipulation. There's actually no evidence of it. And that's why it's getting thrown out of court. That's possibility one. Possibility two is that the, what the Biden did at every stage had really good plausible deniability that if they dumped ballots, it got processed. And now how do you go back to prove that specific ballots were the ones that should have been, shouldn't have been processed and should have been processed that like what happened behind closed doors happened and now there's no way to unwind it. I think that's unlikely because just think about how coordinated you'd have to be in terms of the amount of people who are in on that. Um, So the answer is I find this one very interesting because I'm really not sure and I don't see good reporting happening on it. And it does seem really odd to me that with, I guess some of the compelling Loose statistical claims, there seems to be no evidence thus far. I don't understand why they're making no headway with court cases. Yeah. But just, yeah, just to throw one more idea out there, yeah. that might be us being suckers for the propaganda also. Yeah. We're like, how come if there's something here, no one's reporting on it? Well, that's kind of the way it works is that you over-report on things that are not true because then it's very loud and you think like systemic racism or you think Russia collusion, you say it enough times, people yeah. start to believe it oh, even yeah. if it's not true. It works in the reverse way where if you totally silence things that are true, people think, well, that's crazy because they don't hear it. But that doesn't necessarily mean, you, you see what I'm saying? Well, yeah, no, no. Getting back to you know what, what the, 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 the British Journal of Medicine, which is apparently a, a pretty mainstream publication, peer-reviewed, and it's rather shocking statements about uh, the vaccines uh, that uh, nobody seems to be reporting in the in the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, the two papers I read every day, and so on. So, of course, obviously, I grant your point that uh, the media, uh, obviously the corporate press, the corporate media, as you say, could be misreporting. Uh, there, there was a suggestion, here I'm in the dark about this, partly I've, I've, I find your question, of course, interesting, but not compelling. You know, I, I don't find, you know, elections to be very impressive. I like to follow them like sporting events, but just pretty much from the sidelines. But there was a suggestion about taking a, a, a sample of the mail-in ballots, you know, that you could, you, you, you talked about how difficult it would be to follow up, but you could take a, a reasonably good statistically representative sample and do follow-ups yeah you saw for the so, but that i guess makes sense nobody, nobody, i hadn't thought about that but that makes sense nobody's empowered to do that i guess that's the problem although of course cutting to the chase i, I liked uh, you know what what dave uh, was saying uh, uh uh most recently on your part of the problem broadcast that that you know this that uh, look there's a silver lining in the biden presidency in my view as long as you get uh, a gridlock uh, of, uh effect 
from the Republicans uh, ruling the Senate. That's important to me. I actually made a contribution. First time I, I saw ever that. Made. I saw that email. Yeah. I was embarrassed about it, but I thought I, I actually <laughs> wanted a few people to make the same. I imagine you tend to agree with me that you'd like to see what it's now, what is it? Uh, it's, it's 50 to 48, 50 Republicans. And if they pick up two in Georgia, it'd be 52 to 48. Then, and then we get some gridlock, you know, which I think would be good. I imagine you support it. And you probably yes. probably just, you know, sold your uh, your gold and your Bitcoin and you made the investment. You raised the 80 bucks from those uh, from those assets and you. Uh, <laughs> I can I can send them that t-shirt you were talking about yeah, that's right and you can say you know sell it to a porn shop and that's my contribution and so you know i like to see that as well but anyway um yeah all interesting and i guess you know it doesn't you know as you know obviously you know you probably saw my tweet you know i tried to do all the definitions of democracy you know 50 the right of 51 percent of the people to piss in the soup of the other 49 <laughs> the electoral college is 49 percent pissing in the soup of the other 51 percent and uh, you know two two lions and a lamb voting on what to have for lunch you know, it's a. It's obviously we know you and I as libertarians, of course, have got to point out that that at best, at best, democracy is a necessary evil. You know, we don't want to vote on what Rob Bernstein does next. We don't. You know, clearly, we don't. We don't like majority rule about what people do. That's that's a very uninspiring idea. We have far too much of of, uh, of this uh, bullshit, and so clearly, democracy is democracy sucks. It's not our thing. So, but obviously, but with that said, obviously, it's it's, it's intriguing to follow the horse race and and to uh, and just speculate about what might have happened. I guess, as you said, you were frustrated, I think, about a couple of weeks ago on part of the problem, and you said that we never really, really will know, you know, what, what really ha what happened in this election, you know, and uh, I imagine you're right. But yeah. I thought, Rob, you wanted to ask me about your difficulties with reading human action. So, uh, well, how do you pronounce his last name? <laughs> Why don't you tell me so I can be educated moving on, forward Rob, and not Rob, make not make the error again? Rob, Rob, this is like a test about Alzheimer's. I pronounced it for you before. Do you remember what I said? I think it's Mises, right? Will you stop, Rob? It's oh, it's Mises. Mises. Yeah, means Mises. Yes, look, he pronounced it Mises. So he should throw an E in there. Make it what? clear. He's one of the he's one of the reasons why the Jews dominate libertarianism. Mises was a Jew, so is so is Murray Rothbard. I'll tell you when when I finish the book and I have a full non understanding of it, I'll have you back on and you can uh, tell me what I missed. Rob, Rob, again, let me short circuit that question. Okay, you are confused on page hundred twenty. There's, there's no necessity to read Human Action. Uh, Put it down. You're wasting your time. As a matter of fact, I was thinking at the back of my mind while you were asking me the questions about what should you pick up. I mean, I mean, I'm going to suggest a departure. I could suggest the collection of essays called uh, "Economic Controversies" by Murray Rothbard. Short, you know, like. 20 page takes. It has an introduction by me talking nice. about how Murray Rothbard changed the economic controversy series of essays. Look, Rob, you talked about how you don't want to believe with the Austrians that 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 people are always rational. Is that what you said, Rob? No, no. So I, you know what? I'm going to backtrack. And yeah. I think you took uh, my statement, which was more gray, as being black and white. Oh, well, no. um, I, I think that's something. I will finish Human Action because I've set I've set to read it. The first hundred twenty pages have meant nothing to you, Rob. It's, so you don't understand a word of it. So what are you what are you pursuing it for? I mean, the fact of the matter is there is a bit of a problem with Human Action. This guy, amazingly, at the yeah. age of fifty nine, 
he started to write in English. He'd, he'd, he'd written in German all his life. You know, it's remarkable that he did that well. You try, you try writing in German at the age of... I, so, I, firstly, I'm not criticizing the book. I'm saying that thus far, I have not been able to really grasp it. losses, Rob. <laughs> Cut your losses. I, I, I mean, I, I, I think that. But I, I, to speak to human human rationality, I find it to be an an interesting topic. The book that I read that I thought was the most interesting on it was um, I don't know if you ever came across it. It was called Thinking Fast and Slow. Of course, was, sure. You read, well, yes, I did. Yeah, yeah, indeed. I actually, I was a little disappointed. I, I, I'm steeped in those guys. I know those guys, and of course, they were, you know, you know, basically the the paradigmatic idea about about mental accounting, the irrationalities about mental accounting, is is somebody who who has a a savings account that's earning you know four percent interest and and carrying credit card debt at eighteen percent, and so instead of and I had a friend who did that. He knew he was paying he was he was paying credit card debt at eighteen percent, but he wouldn't cash in in his savings account. At Four percent. So basically, you understand the stupidity of that. Obviously, if he if he, he could wipe out that eighteen percent debt and with the four percent, he couldn't because people book wealth in all kinds of different ways. And so that's the paradigmatic example of the irrationalities of mental accounting. We we do. I mean, Richard Thaler who won the Nobel Prize. I dealt with him all the time. There's lots of great insights about how people reason, all the ways in which people get confused and do mental accounting in terms of the way they proceed. So there's a lot of irrationality out there, Rob. But what What's your point about that? Um, what's my point about human rationality? Does that have, does, does well, that? No, I also think that um, yeah. I, I would say, yeah. Um, yeah. I don't want to pronounce the name wrong incorrectly. Mises. Mises, thank you. Me. Just say I think me. sometimes um, more highly intelligent people um, have a hard time, I guess, understanding the uh, compulsive reality of other people's decision-making process, and that perhaps it's not as um, it's not as rational as uh, it, it. Like in other words, people are making what they know to be bad decisions because of compulsion or out of habit or for other bad reasons, and so even they are making decisions that they don't necessarily want or agree with. Sure, and that's that's probably you're sort of like talking about market failure, about how about about I mean all of these perversities, uh, uh, Rob, basically do exist. And part of the virtue of the of the Austrians, by the way, I mean one other one other sort of paradigmatic difference between the Austrians and and the Chicago boys, you know, the extreme rationality people, and even the Chicago boys, of course, in practice, I mean Milton Friedman and others from the University of Chicago, even they, of course, when they actually talk about reality they 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 don't uh, they they don't get uh, super excited about the idea of rational self-maximizing man that 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 you go that you're passing through a town and you get excellent service from the waiter and you leave a very large tip but why would you do that it's not in your self-interest to do that because you'll never return to that restaurant again so people do things for all kinds of reasons just because they feel good and of course all of the things that you might list are valid but the the the, the virtue of the austrians as well is that we we austrians do not put it in mathematical formulae we basically talk about we we infer human action which i may use that expression uh, 
from from human motivation. We 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 we. What is the law of demand? The law of demand basically says that 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 the more you have of something, the less value you'll place on on those additional units. You know, the first the first uh, units of, a, of of water you'll drink. The next units of water you might wash in. You'll swim in it. Uh, you'll 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 uh, you'll you'll uh, you'll use it to, uh, to to water the grass. After a while, it becomes a bath. We put the first units of a good to the most urgent use, and that's why the more the, the oil, crude oil, gasoline, we put it to the most urgent use of getting to the store. But if it, but if there's very little of it, we'll just allocate it for our absolute necessities, and we don't won't take any pleasure trips. So the more you have of something, the less value you place on it. That's all. Now that's a that that's a tendency that's very powerful. Powerful enough so that we know that if you increase the amount of oil in the world, the price will fall. That's all. Now, you nodded to that. You nodded and you recognize that, that, that the law of demand has a lot of power, a lot of truth in it, uh, that, that, that it is more supply, even given all of the irrationalities that we might talk about. All the, well, I, could, I could elaborate on the law of demand and talk about maybe little ways in which it is irrational, which it jumps in little ways. I could talk about the law of supply and why, uh, why, why a price has to increase for, people, for more supply to come out. So the point, all of the key basic insights of Austrian economics are, are powerful tendencies that are powerful enough to generalize about. But we know that just as I was talking about, you know, just the empirical data of, of, uh, of lockdowns, we know that we've got a lot of intellectual mess in the world. With respect to the minimum wage, we, we know that, that all of the arguments on the other side for why the minimum wage might actually not diminish unemployment, you know, why the minimum wage might not be a bad idea. There are all kinds of possible exceptions. But we do know that in general, if you hike the minimum wage from $8 to $15, bucks, then, then, then when you look at what might happen to small businesses and how they might reorient, we know that the response is more or less predictable even though you have messy, a messy reality. We know that right. the default position is that. Now, you want to shut me up, Rob, because we're concluding, is that? But I, I just want to end with one recommendation. Read, yes. this is a big shift. Even though he's not an Austrian, he, 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 he's very lucid. He, he illustrates his economic point through very vivid stories. This is Thomas Sowell's book, Basic economics. I think I read that. Wasn't that, or no, I read economics in one lesson. Was that a different? That was Henry Hazlitt. Oh, okay. That's a, that's a classic work written years ago. This is a this is a book that's about as fat as human action. It's got great stories. He doesn't use graphs. He basically discusses economics from the standpoint of stories, dense histories. And it's very, very clear. And even though he's not an Austrian, and the book is not perfect, Basic Economics by Thomas Sowell. I'll tell you what, right? Defer going back to human action six months from now under my tutelage. I'll tell you when you're ready to tackle human action. You're not ready yet. Don't okay. misallocate your time. Read, get a copy of Basic Economics by Thomas Sowell. Then we'll talk again, and then I'll see when you're ready for human action. Okay, I'm going to take you up on that. And uh, in the past, we've done run-your-mouth book reviews. Yeah. So down the line, we'll discuss human action once I can actually wrap my head around it. Okay, well, maybe before that, we'll discuss basic economics. And okay, I'm going to take you up on that. You're, you're, you've got a student here, Gene. I'm going to do great. my homework. That's great, Rob. You're a very promising student. It's been a very a pleasure talking with you. The, the, one of the greatest pleasures in life is teaching, and you're a great student. So this has been a great pleasure. Thank you. And uh, before we call it, um, why don't you tell uh, people what the next debate's going to be? Well, the next debate will be about the lockdown. I'm going to get Martin Kaldorf. Martin Kaldorf is uh, one of the principal authors of the great 
Barrington Declaration. He's a professor from Harvard Medical School. He will be opposed by a guy named Andrew Neumer, uh, 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 who is from UC, uh, uh, University of California Medical School, uh, Medical School uh, actually an epidemiological school. So there was, so it will be a debate. And uh, Neumer is going to defend the idea that basically uh, lockdowns are bad, lockdowns have, more, have done more harm than good, and that will be uh, Sunday in mid-December. Uh, go to the Soho Forum uh, uh, link. Go to my uh, Twitter account at Gene Soho Forum at Gene Soho Forum for the regular announcements about that. Plus, go to my uh, Twitter account for my pithy statements about reality at Gene Soho Forum. Uh, and again, our next Soho Forum debate will be in mid-December. Yeah. Excellent. Gene, thank you so much. Yeah. And uh, let's do it again sometime. Let's do it again. Bye-bye. Yeah, sure. Bye. Bye.